Welcome back to The Big Dig. Today, Robert Andrews of AHA Consulting, Colin Schles of Thornton Tomasetti, Chris Leary of Jacobs, and Maggie McCary, Director of Energy Efficiency for the Massachusetts Department of Energy Resources, discuss the statewide energy code and what building owners and developers should be thinking about as the energy landscape rapidly evolves. Today's episode of The Big Dig is brought to you by AHA Consulting Engineers. Over the past 28 years, AHA has worked with industry leaders to deliver more than 500 million square feet of high-performance facilities throughout the U.S. Their services range far beyond MEP and FP design. From strategic concept development to first-class innovative design, AHA is beyond engineering. All right. Thank you guys for joining us on The Big Dig. If you could just go around and introduce yourselves and uh, let us know where you work and what your role is there. Good morning. My name is Bob Andrews. I am managing partner and uh, director of AHA Consulting Engineers Cambridge office where we design building systems. Good morning. My name is Maggie McCary. I'm director of the Energy Efficiency Division at the Department of Energy Resources, which is the state's energy policy office. And good morning. This is Chris Leary. I'm an architect and lead Jacobs New England operations. I'm Colin Schles. I work for Thornton Tomasetti. We're a multidisciplinary engineering firm, and I co-lead uh, both our San Francisco and Boston Energy Analytics Group with a focus on energy modeling, daylight performance, and for the purposes of this podcast, Passive House. So a new statewide code was adopted earlier this month. Let's start off by discussing a few of the new requirements for new construction and existing buildings. So Massachusetts has uh, recently adopted the International uh, Energy Conservation Code of 2018. Massachusetts is required to adopt the, the new IECC code within uh, 12 months of publication, I believe. And so Massachusetts uh, adopts it wholly and then makes modifications to it. Um, the major modifications include changes to how much power is allowed to be used for lighting system design. And there have been some small modifications in terms of adding insulation to buildings and uh, small modifications into HVAC equipment efficiency. But for the most part, the changes have addressed lighting, both indoors and outdoors. And uh, there's also been uh, some additional language added uh, to look at uh, solar power and being available and, and making it uh, part of the building design and construction, if not now, then future. And then also to add some requirements for incorporating electric vehicle accommodations and charging stations into uh, new buildings. Um, I can say from the state's policy perspective, uh, we're excited about the new building code. Uh, building codes are building energy codes are critical to improving the efficiency of new construction, uh, and we see that as a really critical component to our long-term energy and climate policy uh, to be able to meet our goals under the Global Warming Solutions Act. And just to add to that, there's also, of course, a compliance path for Passive House, uh, where uh, should a project achieve uh, Passive House pre-certification and eventually full certification, um, one can achieve code compliance. So, so Bob and Colin, maybe just a thought. I, I know new codes are always scary. They seem harder, right? More expensive. You hear those things. But, you know, the reality, some of the things in the code are kind of just the world of technology, right? Like lighting power density, it seems like there's a big step up. But now that we've gone to LED lighting, We've kind of taken care of that, right? So the compliance with the, uh, the new requirements in terms of lower power density are achievable 
using LED lighting. Uh, Part of the challenge is there are additional requirements for controls as well. So what we used to use for lighting controls to show energy savings have been taken away in terms of showing energy savings now that they've been mandated. But in terms of achievable, yes, should yeah, so, be fine. So, so I think one of the things I was hearing during your presentation that might be interesting to the audience is that it's not so much meeting the baseline minimum of the code that's the challenge. It's that a lot of projects were showing exemplary performance in the past, achieving a high lead rating because they were so much better than the baseline. So as the baseline has come up, it really just might be your project doesn't look as ex exceptional anymore. And that's absolutely true yeah. in terms of, you know, any project that follows even, you know, stretch code, Massachusetts code, or lead requirements these days, you know, because of the fact that the baseline standards have increased and have gotten more uh, challenging, the energy savings that we're able to show relative to the latest standard has gone down. If we were still showing energy savings relative to the 2007 or the 2004 standard that we started using, the energy savings that we could show would be dramatic. And that whole dramatic showing of energy savings is now gone because the baseline keeps increasing. Yeah, so, so it's not that it's so much harder to meet the code. It's just going to be harder to be exceptional. We're going to have to try harder and come up with newer creative exactly. things. Which is great. I mean, rising tide floats all boats, right? I mean, what we're seeing is as an energy analyst where I'm actually, you know, kind of slowly working myself out of a job is that as code compliance increases, the performance increases, then, um, you know, all buildings just by nature become more efficient. So, you know, for our society as a whole, it's a, it's a really great thing, actually. It, it is. Um, the new standards make it you know, more difficult to achieve, but on the other side of the coin, there has to be a means of adjusting folks' expectations as well, and I think that's part of the challenge. You know, If someone's used to building gold-certified buildings because they've been doing it for 10 years, now they've got a new energy standard, you know, a new lead program or following Passive House, and now instead of showing 25 or 30 percent energy savings compared to the standard, now we're at 12 or 16. Their immediate thought is, how come it's lower? Right. And I, you know, certainly appreciate that. It keeps keeps me employed. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the reality is, is the challenges that we're facing in terms of you know, climate change potential, uh, limiting greenhouse gas emissions. The reality is, is, I mean, we have really, really big challenges ahead of us, right? I mean, if we're going to meet some of the targets, like the 2030 targets out there, Massachusetts-specific targets, and taking a big ship like the AEC industry and steering it in that direction um, requires a lot of effort. And so I think you're spot on. There's going to be a lot of people that say, hey, this isn't the way we've been doing this so far. Um, why isn't this working like it used to? Um, and I think it's our job to help guide that ship in the right direction and show them how it can actually be cost effective in that direction. We thought a lot about this as we develop uh, incentive programs and grant programs from the state uh, to provide incentives for energy efficiency and to help uh, help developers meet the building code, but also continue to push the boundary um, to get buildings more efficient than code. And that's part of the reason why we developed this new Passive House incentive offering over the next three years that will be available. And part of that is to help incentivize uh, performance of the buildings, but a big part of it is about training and workforce development and helping get more Passive House certified professionals here in Massachusetts so we can uh, continue to see buildings uh, performing better than code and really continue to push the boundary going forward. Well, Maggie, you mentioned in your presentation earlier that there's $2.7 billion um, into this program in the next three years, and a lot of that is for incentives. Um, 
so you mentioned Passive House. What other programs um, are there for people to get some of that money? Sure. So the $2.7 billion investment is our uh, statewide 2019 through 2021 Mass Save Energy Efficiency Plan. Uh, And these are mandated by the Green Communities Act and implemented by the investor and utilities and program administrators. And over the next three years, we're seeing an expansion of programs that will be eligible. So specifically for commercial and industrial, uh, there are significant incentives available for efficient new construction, for renovation, for heating equipment upgrades. Uh, We're also going to see new incentives for fuel switching to help customers convert from uh, fossil fuels to more efficient technologies like renewable thermal technologies, cold climate air source heat pumps. And we'll be rolling out new statewide programs for active demand management to help commercial and industrial customers actually reduce energy usage when it costs them the most and really help customers save money and help save greenhouse gas emissions. And by the way, just to put in a plug, we've seen great success with some of those programs. Um, I don't know if we can drop a specific technology, but, you know, Bob and I recently on a panel talking about a heat recovery technology that we're seeing a lot in our lab buildings. And uh, on a large building, this can be an $800,000 premium. I've seen it on the cost savings list. Um, But this is a case where, you know, even in a building where the tenant is paying for the power, uh, the building owner, the the developer, um, is looking at making that investment. And it was really the incentive from the utility uh, that, that made the difference as businesses and to use this better technology. Great. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, and I'd also ask um, you guys as well, what other practical examples you've seen or are planning in development projects you're working on um, in, this, in this field? Well, you know, I, I guess I could speak to that again from the, the Passive House standpoint um, is that with the adoption of that standard into the code process. Um, We've seen a different approach to buildings, which is exciting. Um, There was a mention before about the technology requirements in code, talking about LPDs, lighting power densities, uh, ways to reduce energy usage. Um, Passive House takes a bit of a, a kind of a radically different approach, where Passive House is actively looking at the the kind of thermal signature of the building. It's saying um, how much heating is your building calling for throughout the year? How much cooling is it calling for throughout the year? And how can we get that demand and those peaks lower? Um, It's kind of a performance standard from that standpoint. And then, of course, with energy targets also. Um, Now, the approach to limiting those things um, has resulted in really different buildings. So uh, we're having projects look at things like air tightness very early in the design process, looking at detailing very early in the design process, looking at where, um, you know, steel might be going from outside to inside, very conductive things that may be losing heat. Um, And we're also looking at comfort through the standard, which is really changing the approach to buildings. We're looking at what temperature will your window be in the dead of winter and will it be comfortable to be up next to it? Um, So uh, those are largely process changes in the in the design process um as opposed to specific technology changes um but what we've seen is kind of a more robust more resilient building uh come from from those changes which is which is exciting yeah you know, as an architect one of the things i'm excited about with passive house is um we've kind of taken lead for granted now and and i think if you go back 10 or 15 years ago when lead was new it, it, there's a rating system and there were things, but it gave us a language. And, and you know, back before LEED, architects didn't know what ASHRAE 90.1 was. Uh, we didn't know what low VOC paints were. Uh, and, you know, when it started, you couldn't get low VOC paints. This was, But now it's hard to get paints that 
aren't compliant. So I, th I think Lead's been incredibly successful at transforming an industry of the point system in Lead. These things are things we talk about now. Like we all know how to talk about them. We know what a commissioning agent is. They seem silly now, but like we didn't know these things. And in, in, a, in a way, I think Lead has plateaued a little bit because we've all gotten complacent with it, right? We know how to do a gold building. We can stretch for platinum building, but it, it's almost gotten um, to the point where it's not challenging projects anymore. But with Passive House, now there's a whole new dialogue about um, you know, Aaron Trayment, the building envelope, sure. uh, doing building uh, envelope commissioning. So I, I think that it's going to introduce a whole series of issues that probably seem scary and un unattainable today that five years from now will be part of the common vocabulary. Yeah, I think, I think one thing we, we haven't talked about, back to Colin's point, is really the resiliency aspect of Passive House. And I've heard anecdotally from residents that live in Passive House construction that, you know, you can you can go, if you lose power or heat, you can go days uh, and still be comfortable. And so, especially as we think about affordable housing market and multifamily opportunities for Passive House, I think it's something we haven't talked about, but, but the resiliency aspect is critical. Yeah. And, you know, to the point too before about lead and passive house, um, one thing I think it's important to bring up is that the two actually play really well together. Um, the USGBC has recognized lead as a standard, and if you achieve passive house pre-certification, uh, you are awarded effectively all of the energy points, or most of them, if not all of them, in lead. Um, so I think lead has been a really strong holistic standard that addresses things like, you know, your site, your material selection, um, water efficiency, and uh, Passive House dovetails in and says, you know, take this deep dive approach to energy also. So um, it's a nice evolution in the way we're thinking about high performance buildings. Well, it's, it's, lead was transformative in the marketplace. And so that was part of their goal. But 20 years ago, I didn't know the word sustainable. And, and Chris and I were, were fairly early adopters. I remember one of the, the early lead projects I was doing talking about low VOCs. The low VOC adhesive that they were using in the cabinetry was not attaching the veneers to the lead approved wood that they were using as a substrate. And so we had to choose. Do we want, you know, the adhesive or do we want the wood? And so... You know, that that problem is, you know, solved. It's been taken care of. We've gotten but to the experimentation stage. Absolutely. There. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of the issues that initially came up or that lead shined a light on have been addressed. And so, Chris, you, you used the word complacent. I want to choose comfortable okay. instead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, we've, we've done a lot of lead projects, both separately and together. And it's something that you know, we're familiar with. And, and LEAD version 4 kind of took LEAD program and, and turned it on its head and shook it a little bit, um, especially in terms of the material requirements and, and the reporting. So uh, that, that's probably a whole different podcast that we could get into. And to, just to touch on the, the kind of the feeling comfortable about the process issue, um, one thing that we have seen is, you know, we've been involved in the standard for Oh, geez, I don't know, I guess like the better part of 10 years now. Um, and we've seen developers go through this process where they do their first project. And then that, you know, is a bit of a steep hill to climb. But once that detailing and that construction process is normalized, then the projects become easier. Those, de those details don't have a cost premium on them. And the testing and the sequencing doesn't have a premium on it either. So really the evolution is 
that it will become standard practice. And I know there's groups out there, uh, there's Place Taylor, um, which is a, a developer architect in town um, that has basically been hitting the passive house standard on all of their projects. It's just kind of the way they do things now. So it, it, it is possible, um, but yeah, we just, we need to keep working to get there. So you guys touched on at the event, how these different programs and ratings can vary across different building types, office versus a lab. Can you discuss a little bit more how that, you know, works and what comes into play there? Yeah, that, that's a good point. I mean, just to, to kind of keep asking the question, I often hear dialogues and projects about a feature that worked somewhere. And sometimes there's a misunderstanding that that was a feature that was perfectly appropriate for a residential building, um, but in a laboratory building might be different. Uh, just to kind of bring the conversation, you know, Colin, you, you brought up a good point during the, the live presentation that uh, just when the buildings are used, you know, buildings are there all the time, but it was a good point that in, you're in an office building when the sun is shining, uh, when peak demand is occurring, uh, and you're in your apartment then at night when the lights are out and it's a little colder. So I, I think, yeah, pattern of use is one issue. But even just, Bob, the de- we didn't get to talk about the, you know, the different demands, the different variables that really play in a lab building versus an office building versus a resi building. Maybe you want to start there? Sure. Yeah. And lab buildings, because of the fact that they are labs, the whole purpose of a lab building, the HVAC system in a lab building, is to move air in and out. And so Passive House looks at building tightness and trying to minimize the amount of air that moves in or moves out without being controlled. Whereas the whole point of a lab HVAC system is to move air through the building and get it the heck several out times of it. A, several times several, an hour we bring oh, the absolutely. Out, yeah. And so the, the single largest energy user in a lab building is the HVAC system, followed closely by the equipment that the tenant puts in. And lighting, windows, walls, roof, just fall by the wayside in terms of being energy users or energy use impactors. Now, for years, I've been saying that the best money that you can put into your envelope has been buy good glass because windows are holes in buildings through which you pour energy dollars. And so if you take your money, rather than super insulating the walls, at least in New England, if you, if you get good enough walls, but you get fantastic glass, your energy bills will go down. In a lab building, that doesn't, it's not really the same argument because of the fact that the building envelope as it, as, as it sits is a very small overall impactor of the energy use in the building. We're focusing on heat recovery or controls. We, 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 is, is, is a, is a yeah. huge jump in yeah. energy savings if we can do energy recovery. And uh, you know, some of the newer energy recovery systems that we've been looking at are, are quantum leaps in energy savings because... In a lab building, we can't use the very high efficiency heat recovery where we've got one airstream, the supply airstream close to the exhaust airstream because of the fear for cross-contamination. So we've got to keep the airstream separate. Therefore, how do we move the, the heat from one airstream to the other airstream becomes a critical part of that discussion. So, Bob, I, I agree with you mostly. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. This should be good. The, uh, I mean, w- one, one of the, I mean, I, uh, of course, in a lab building, when you're looking at something like anywhere from eight air changes to hour to like 15 air changes per hour, um, obviously a lot of that energy demand for that building comes down to how do you deal with thermal losses with that air exchange. Um, the part where I depart a bit is that, you know, most lab buildings out there, I have yet to see a lab building that is 100% lab. More often than not, 
lab buildings are 50% office, 50% lab. And so there's half of the building where um, you don't have these wild air change rates. And for those, you can focus on things like thermal comfort. You can focus on things like excellent windows. And of course, when you look at the EUI of the building, the overall energy performance, it's going to be the lab side that's driving that. And a lot of these passive house measures, you can't apply to that. But I don't think that's a reason to forget that component of the building where people are going to be sitting all day, where there's really opportunities for comfort and energy savings relative to that program area. So um, again, 100% agree with you that looking at strategies like you know heat reclaim on lab air is critical for getting the overall energy use down. Um, but there is that 50% of the building that's important to you know pay attention to. And and so I will agree with you most of the way. <laughs> and and the reason for that is. A lot of times the lab buildings that we're doing are not for one tenant. It's really rare that we'll do either a build to suit or a dedicated lab building for one tenant. What we're dealing with is a multi-story building that has five, six, eight different tenants, each of whom has a percentage of their space is lab and, and is office. And then when their lease expires, the next tenant that comes in depending on how much money they want to put into it, you know, moves lab around, moves office around, configures things differently. And so when we're doing the core and shell, it's hard to say what portion or what area of the building will be office versus lab. We can say that we're going to do 50% lab, 50% office, or 60-40 or whichever. But the owner wants the flexibility to give to the tenants to put their stuff where they want it and then in five years or ten years when the lease expires it's potentially going to change well you know you know what Colin, one thing that excited me during your presentation that i hadn't seen before to that level of sophistication was uh you showed a tool that let you run scenarios and that, that, there was you know oh, I, the, I forget. the tool was cool well, well so what's interesting <laughs> is that you know the point is there's different things in a building right you want more windows for for daylighting you want mm -hmm. less windows for energy yeah. and, and you, you make choices and the choices change depending on the scenario so that tool seemed to be able to at least put some science because we're talking about intuition yeah. you know you know surely the envelope matters no the envelope doesn't that it looked like that tool could actually put some science or some math and help you make a more intelligent choice yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you have the ability, this tool is a bit tricky to describe over a podcast, but the idea is that you can run hundreds of thousands of simulations very quickly and then narrow down which solutions meet your performance criteria from that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it builds in a level of flexibility with programs. Um, I, I think to just kind of address that, not to kick a dead horse too much, but on, you know, core and shell development projects, right? Um, you're, you're right. I mean, you need a very flexible program. And I think the answer that I would give to that is that um, I would rather have some redundancy where no matter where you put an office, it will be comfortable to be up next to that glass than have a building where you're risking being uncomfortable next to some of that glass. So, um, Per that redundancy, you may end up with triple pane glazing or, um, you know, a very good envelope in places where your air is changing over so fast it has very little impact on energy performance. But you are guaranteed to have a very comfortable space next to that facade. Yeah. Well, I'm all in favor of comfort next to the facade. Otherwise, I get phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> well, that brings up the point of... T the tenants. How are they affected um, by these by these policies and are they enjoying these the energy efficient buildings? 
Well, a lot of the tenants out in the market now, depending on the type of lease you have, are paying directly for their energy. That's one thing that's fundamentally different for laboratory tenants. You know, office tenants can be a mix. But, you know, I know in our office space lease that we signed, we're actually paying triple net lease. We're paying directly for energy. Um, it, it's funny, from our experience with the real estate community, there wasn't, there was a lot of understanding of what the rent would be. Um, and when you got into the building operations costs, honestly, less so. And, and that's kind of interesting when you know you're going to pay your utility bill. Um, if one were to buy a house, you could go see what the guy before you bought for oil and power. Um, Bob, you look like you're ready to get in. Yeah, yeah. we're, we're, we're actually we're actually looking at leasing new space yeah. right now. We're we're moving from from one spot in yeah. Cambridge to a spot in, in Boston, and triple net as a term is is kind of a black hole into which the landlord throws things that that aren't covered by your rent charge, and so we've seen leases presented to us that have, uh, you know, you're going to pay your electric bill. Here's your meter. Okay, fabulous. That, that, that's understandable. Or, you know, the triple net charge covers, you know, all of your energy use and your pro rata share of maintenance and your pro rata share of park maintenance and your pro rata share of park events. And, you know, the, the dollar impact of that can be, you know, 1% of your dollar per square foot, whatever your rental rate is. Or uh, we've seen triple nets that are 25, 30% of your dollar per square foot rate, depending on the real estate market and the location that you're looking at. And so energy costs as part of that triple net, to one sense, should be something that tenants focus on. On the other side of the coin though, if I'm one floor of a 12-story building and I'm really good with my energy use, but the other 11 floors aren't, where's my incentive to be good? Yeah, that's a, a challenge we see in the commercial real estate sector and also in the residential sector and multifamily when it comes to uh, landlord te- landlord tenant split and something that um, we've been working with the utilities on to try to improve the energy efficiency programs to better reach those types of customers um, because someone's paying into the energy efficiency sure. programs and we want to make sure that we continue to deliver benefits across all of those customers. But it's funny, I mean, Bob, I think as you talk about the, uh, you know, the, the, the double pane uh, ventilator, if you got the joke of, uh, yes. you know, who, remember being in the old dorm where the radiator's going all winter and you're opening the window, um, you wouldn't do that if you paid the electric and heat bill. But if, it's, uh, if it ab- comes with... Absolutely it, not. Yeah. But I remember yeah. being in college yeah. at, at one of the, the state universities, yeah. and the window was open most of the, the winter because of the fact that it was hot in the dorm room. I don't know. I, I guess from, from our standpoint, in terms of uh, promoting efficiency measures, um, I, I'm, I'm personally seeing less and less traction talking about energy costs with tenants. Um, and that was an argument that I used for a really long time, um, again, because it's near and dear to my heart. Um, of course, like the EUI of a building, the energy use intensity, the, you know, the cost that's reflected by that is critically important. It's the metric that we're most familiar with. Um, having worked in the Bay Area for some time, working in Boston for some time, um, we get a lot of developers that are looking to go to tech tenants that are saying, you know, what's the differentiator? How can we differentiate our project from other projects? And we say, okay, you know, your energy use intensity is going to be lower than anybody else. And the question becomes like, how is that going to attract more people to the building? And there are some people, you know, some young people that are interested in this type of thing, old people, but really 
the thing that hits home most about energy efficiency seems to be comfort. Is if you can have a building that is thermally comfortable and well daylit with a continuous supply of fresh air, that's something that resonates with people that will be using the building. And that's the way that at least we've been most successful promoting energy efficiency and promoting these high performance measures is, is what's the result on the end user to the experience of that building. Yeah. Right, but that's going to be the tenant's employees and, and by driver, then whoever's in charge of the tenant. But whoever's in charge of the tenant will also be looking at the bottom line. But, but you know, the win-win the there, and you're right, because it's funny, early, early in the days of LEED, this is going to second side, but I'll come back. I always thought our university clients would be the early adopters of LEED. And when the LEED corn shell program, strangely, it was the real estate developers that really ran to the forefront because it was a way to get through permitting and a way to sell a building to a tenant. Yeah. This building yeah, is good. It was a marketing yeah. distinct. D yeah. distinction. They so were. I think that's a good point is, is uh, and you corrected us, is to try to find the right vocabulary to, so the guy that owns the building can sell value to his customers, the tenants. That You made an excellent point there. I mean, yeah, what these folks want, you know, if you're a big tech company, like getting the right employee is the critical thing. I mean, it's very difficult to find, you know, engineers, technical people that want to work for these companies. There's a lot of competition for people these days. So what is the differentiator that will bring somebody in? So if the owner is thinking like that, then the developer that's selling to the owner, if they are speaking that language of daylighting and comfort, um, that's a major selling point. That's, you know, a way a building can directly impact this company by bringing in good people. All right. Well, thank you guys all for joining us here on The Big Dig. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We hope you enjoyed that conversation. And now here is the Caulfield Properties Market Update. It's Kevin Caulfield from Caulfield Properties at Compass. And I'm here with your Big Dig monthly condo marketing report. I would say right now there's, you know, there's obviously more construction going on in the city of Boston than there has been in probably the last 15 years. You know, South Boston, we're seeing a lot. Um, you know, there's more new construction new buildings going up a lot of its residential multifamily it will be you know interesting to see how things transform south boston over the next five years i think it's changed pretty drastically over the past five years you know you're seeing what used to be a demographic of young professionals to young families you know we're now seeing Empty nesters attracted to South Boston, I think, because it's a little bit more affordable than, um, you know, your Boston proper neighborhoods, and you're getting a little bit more for your money over there. And so, you know, you still have the same city conveniences, the same proximity to downtown, and, and you get all of those conveniences with a little bit more space and more amenity. So it's been an attractive, um, an attractive neighborhood for a lot of empty nesters. Yeah, I think that whole Dorchester Ave, Old Colony um, area is going to be interesting. There's a lot of proposed development down there, um, you know, some high mid-rise buildings. There's a lot of residential. You've got Washington Square that, that's, that's going to happen. So I think there's a lot of room for appreciation and there's opportunity out there for buyers right now that are, you know, that I think are willing to push the limits in terms of location for future appreciation because I think that, you know, when that transformation it has been complete, that's going to be another area of South Boston that people are going to be drawn to. There's going to be a lot of retail, restaurants, 
um, bars, public transportation down there. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of things that are um, that are very attractive in that in that area of South Boston. And I think, you know, we're going to start to see the the area get cleaned up. And you know, what were industrial, which was you know has been historically a, an industrial area, um, we're going to start to see it transform and come to life. So. I think, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of people that have uh, interest in that section of South Boston right now. For more information on the Boston condo market, visit our website at caulfieldproperties.com. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's chat on The Big Dig. To learn more about joining The Big Dig, or if you have a recommendation for a subject, please email info at bldup.com. That's info at buildup.com. The Big Dig is brought to you by the National Association of Commercial Real Estate Development and Buildup. To learn more about joining Massachusetts' leading commercial real estate development association, go to naiopma.org. That's naiopma.org. And one last thing, May 1st, Buildup launches its first product, In the Know. In the Know is a first-of-its-kind, data-driven platform that helps you to get real-time market insights that will help you to drive business development and market awareness.